Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. Today, our guest is Dr. Sam Kashani, a board-certified sleep medicine physician who practices at UCLA Health in LA. His clinical interests include chronic insomnia, sleep apnea, narcolepsy, restless leg syndrome, parasomnias, pediatric sleep disorders, and the associations between sleep and mental health. He has completed his residency at Arrowhead Regional Medical Center in Southern California, where he worked with the medically underserved population of San Bernardino County with plans of becoming a primary care physician. Upon completing his residency, he chose to pursue his interest in sleep medicine and completed a fellowship at the David Geffen School of Medicine in UCLA. As a clinical professor of medicine at David Geffen at UCLA, Dr. Kashani maintains a very strong interest in teaching patients as well as students and trainees. He is currently serving on the board of directors for the California Sleep Society and other professional societies and organizations and regularly delivers lectures and conferences on sleep health in the community. Dr. Kastrani, welcome to SpondyCast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the invitation. So we're going to talk today a little bit about sleep, and uh, which I know is extremely important on my end, and I struggle with it myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the overarching questions I have is, that I think many of us overlook is what happens when we sleep to our bodies? It's a good question. Um, A lot of things happen when we're asleep. Um, You know, as we transition, first of all, when we're talking about sleep, uh, sleep itself, there are four stages of sleep in the adult brain. There's stage non-REM one, non-REM two, non-REM three, and stage REM and notice how they're divided between whether or not they are REM or non-REM. And when we say REM, we're referring to rapid eye movement sleep, which is a very, very unique stage of sleep, that fourth and last stage. Um, It's not the only deep stage of sleep. There are, stage three is technically actually a deeper stage of sleep in terms of the restorative quality that we feel when we awaken from sleep. A lot of that is actually stage three, which we lose as we get older and older and older we probably peak in our stage three deep sleep around our teens and twenties, which is why it's so hard to get your teenager out of bed when they're asleep. But ultimately uh, stage three is a very deep stage of sleep and stage REM or rapid eye movement sleep is a very deep stage of sleep. But all four of these stages, there are a lot of unique physiologic processes that take place during each and every one of these. Uh, For example, speaking of stage three sleep, one of the things that happens during that stage of sleep is the release of growth hormone which is a big part of the reason why it's so important that kids and teenagers get full adequate sleep so that they can get all that stage three sleep as part of just their normal growth. Um, There's other hormonal activity that happens during different stages of sleep, everything from thyroid stimulating hormone all the way to, like we said, growth hormone. But really, when you want to talk about um, REM sleep, really, which is a very a deeper and a more unique stage of sleep in the sense that there's a lot of problems or sleep disorders that exclusively affect that stage of sleep. There are a couple of unique 
characteristics of rapid eye movement sleep. So for example, one of the things that happens is that's the stage that we dream, right? Most of our dreams are seen during rapid eye movement sleep, which is about 10 to 20% of our nighttime sleep is spent in that stage. Now, one of the interesting thing that happens, one of the, one of the interesting things that happens during that stage of sleep is that we actually go through a skeletal muscle paralysis and pretty much every single muscle in our body is paralyzed with the exception of our eye muscles, hence rapid eye movements and our breathing muscles, hence why we don't just die all of a sudden. So with that being the case, because you imagine what would happen if the stage during which you see dreams and nightmares, if your muscles were not paralyzed, what would happen? Oh, we might freak out a bit. <laughs> you would start acting your dreams out. Yeah. You would injure yourself and you would injure your bed partner. And this is actually a sleep, one of the sleep disorders that we as sleep doctors treat. It's called REM sleep behavior disorder. Okay. This is, this is a sleep disorder characterized by exactly what we're talking about. Dream enactment, violent and injurious dream enactment behavior occurring due to loss of that muscle paralysis that should normally be occurring during that stage. And it's a, not an uncommon sleep disorder either. And I learned a new word in doing research for this parasomnia. Is that similar to parasomnia, which is? Excellent question. So REM sleep behavior disorder is an example of a parasomnia. So parasomnias refer to a category of sleep disorders that are characterized by complex movements and behaviors. So for example, sleepwalking, that's a parasomnia, except that sleepwalking occurs outside of REM sleep. Sleepwalking occurs during non-REM sleep which is why there is no dream component associated with sleepwalking. In other words, the sleepwalker is not having a dream that they're walking around and they're physically actually enacting that dream content. They're not having a dream at all. They're just exhibiting an automatic behavior of wakefulness during this sort of unstable state of arousal between sleep and wake. Stop me if I'm getting too technical. No, this is fantastic. Um, but it's safe to say that when we sleep, our bodies are healing themselves. Our bodies are healing themselves and our brain and central nervous system, more importantly, is healing itself because one of the things that contributes to the development of Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia is insufficient sleep or inadequate sleep because it's during our deeper stages of sleep, particularly during rapid eye movement sleep, once again, that our brain takes out the trash, so to speak, and clears up what would be a lot of plaques that would otherwise form and cause tangles in the brain. And those tangles of plaques are what lead to dementia. That's really interesting. Uh, that's a whole nother episode. Uh, maybe a different podcast. Uh, so we know what happens when we sleep. We do know that people with spondyloarthritis tend to have sleep disruptions. Mm -hmm. uh, as we, I'm going to get into that a little bit, but can you set the stage for us on what sleep hygiene is? Yeah. Sleep hygiene. So sleep hygiene just refers to having good sleep or sleep and or bedtime habits. So for example, keeping your room cool, dark and quiet. That's a good habit to have because that can help promote good sleep health. Uh, daily exercise. That's a good habit that can help improve sleep regularity. Uh, bright light exposure upon awakening in the morning for circadian rhythm entrainment. These are all examples of habits that are just for good sleep health, kind of like good dietary habits. Shouldn't everybody have good dietary habits, not just people who have metabolic disease or weight problems, right? It should be Absolutely. for everybody. 
Yep. So that means that all of us should have good sleep hygiene, technically speaking. However, I think that really the issue with sleep hygiene with us as sleep physicians, unfortunately, sleep hygiene is the solution or the answer to every sleep problem that you put on Google, whether, you know, you put, I have insomnia or I can't fall asleep or I keep waking up. The answer is always sleep hygiene, sleep hygiene, sleep hygiene where sleep hygiene is not a treatment for anything and it's not any kind of a solution for any kind of actual for any kind of actual sleep problem it's in other words again kind of like the example of good dietary habits everybody should have those but are good dietary habits alone enough to help somebody who's 500 pounds no it's going to take a lot more than just good habits right it's going to take an evidence-based diet it's going to take maybe even bariatric procedure. It's going to take daily exercise, a whole comprehensive plan, not just have three meals a day and stop eating junk food. That's not going to help somebody who's 500 pounds. So right. that's the same idea with sleep hygiene. Somebody who has insomnia, who has 20 years lifelong or 20 year lifelong struggles to fall asleep at night, you just tell them to make their room cool, dark and quiet. That's not going to fix their insomnia. That's an excellent point. And as someone who I personally am, extremely protective of my sleep and have spent years uh i no longer do but i had periods of years where i was up half the night uh with some of the symptoms of spondyloarthritis mm -hmm. but how can spondyloarthritis or a, a chronic uh pain situation impact sleep yeah excellent question Probably one of the most common secondary causes of disrupted sleep at nighttime is chronic orthopedic or chronic musculoskeletal pain. Naturally, when we're asleep, we have no control over our body movements. So as we roll over, we shift position, whatever the case may be, that can aggravate a lot of our pain depending on the site of pain that we feel. So really pain, um, aside from just obvious intrusion into sleep, what it does is number one, whether we have disrupted sleep due to the pain or we just have a noisy neighbor or any of the number of things that can cause really broken sleep or a lot of disruption and awakenings through the night what happens is see when we're asleep our brain waves are kind of slowed down a little bit when we're awake our brain waves are just like rapidly firing super fast but when we're asleep our brain waves kind of slow down some stages slower than others like stage three for example that really deep refreshing stage of sleep is that like a theta is that well, theta is, yeah, theta waves essentially just mean that the person has fallen. So you see, you see theta waves throughout all stages of sleep. It just, that just signifies that they've gone from wave to sleep, but okay. there's what's called delta waves, which are really slow, big waves. Those are like the really refreshing, juicy stage three types of brain waves. Okay. Um, but all that to say, whenever we have an arousal or a disruption or an interruption to our sleep, whether it's somebody who's banging on the door outside of our bedroom in the morning, or it's our alarm clock going off, or it's chronic pain as a result of, like we said, for example, shifting positions in bed and then aggravating a painful site. What happens is our brain gets aroused. We call it microarousal, which is essentially where there is an abrupt increase in the frequency of brain activity. So the brain is just chill in, have a nice little slow, sweet waves of refreshing sleep. And then all of a sudden someone bangs on the door or all of a sudden our alarm clock goes off or all of a sudden we roll onto a bad you know, part of our body and we're in pain. Next thing you know, our brain, while it's doing that nice little slow thing, it'll all of a sudden kind of go like super fast for a few seconds. And that might translate into an overt awakening. That might translate into overt awakening that we may not recall because we don't recall all of our awakenings. Or it might be as subtle as not necessarily a total awakening, but and you can think of it like an ejection 
from whatever stage of sleep you were in at that moment prior to that arousal, knocking you a couple stages back into lighter sleep. This is why people who have disrupted sleep at nighttime, whether it's from chronic pain, whether it's from untreated sleep apnea, for example, which is a breathing disorder during sleep that can be very disruptive throughout the duration of the sleep period, or any of the number of other things that cause constant disruption throughout the nighttime, when if every single time the brain is trying to like get deep sleep and as it gets close, it gets ejected 10 steps back, well, every single time the brain tries to get up to get closer to getting deep sleep again, and then it keeps getting ejected. Well, all night, the brain is just trying and trying and trying, but keeps getting ejected and ejected and ejected. By the time seven hours goes by, how much deep sleep did they really get? Not that much because they kept getting ejected into lighter stages. This is why people feel so sleepy during the daytime. Like, for example, in the case of sleep apnea, which I know that we're not here to talk about that, but it's a very common sleep disorder among people all ages, weights, despite what, you know, a lot of myths that it's only affects people with excess body weight. But this is why those people are so sleepy during the daytime. It's not because of oxygen to the brain. In fact, that's a nonsense myth as well. It's just from constantly getting ejected from intermediate to deeper stages back into lighter stages. Interesting. And the, uh, as you're not sleeping, how does that like actually increase symptoms of some of the chronic pain or a chronic condition? That's a really good question. So, you know, it's the mechanism is kind of similar to sleep and immunity, where the actual mechanism to explain how duration or sufficiency of sleep constitutes adequate immunity, it's kind of the same thing in, in pain tolerance, where there have been plenty of studies that have shown that insufficient or inadequate or just broken, disordered sleep has been associated with lower pain threshold. So that's something that we have definitely seen and we can definitely attest to for when we do experience pain, how important it is for our body to get rest. Uh, again, mechanism not totally understood, but definitely an association that we know of. So when someone comes to you and says, I have spondyloarthritis or a, a chronic disease, I'm not getting enough sleep, I've tried, you know, meditations, sure. keeping the room dark, all these things. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you treat that, right? They're beyond the typical, like one rough night. Mm -hmm. So this is now like essentially a patient visit, right? So you're telling yeah. me you've tried this, you've tried that and nothing's working. Well, my first question is going to be, what's the problem? Falling asleep, staying asleep, both. Is there daytime issue like sleepiness that's really difficult? In the case of somebody who has a lot of chronic pain, for example, they very often may have difficulty with both falling asleep and staying asleep, right? Just getting comfortable and you know, getting themselves to fall asleep. And then, like we said, as long as they're asleep and we, we don't know what our body's doing when we're sleeping, we'll go over and exacerbate it. So my first question is going to be, okay, so if the difficulty is falling asleep and staying asleep, and you're telling me that one of the things that's causing that is this chronic pain, is there anything else? anything else that you can attribute to, because I'll tell you what happens to a lot of us when we have insomnia for a really long time, whether it's related to a physical problem or a cognitive or a behavioral problem, is we start to develop a lot of really dysfunctional thoughts. Exactly. 
we start to develop a lot of dysfunctional thoughts where now it's like, okay, here comes another night of war. I can feel it. It's going to be one of those nights or, oh my God, it's two o'clock in the morning. I'm only going to sleep for 20 minutes. How the hell can I do this? I can't function on less than five hours of sleep. This is so terrible. Tomorrow is going to be so difficult, just like yesterday and so on and so forth. The perpetual cycle of dysfunctional thinking that just perpetuates more and more insomnia. Because what do we do with dysfunctional thoughts about sleep in our bed? We take them into bed with us every yep. night. Absolutely. So now this this location or this environment that used to be associated with rest, relaxation, and restoration is that that's completely been disrupted. And now the association has been conditioned to associate the bed with wakefulness, with frustration, with clock watching, with tossing and turning, with cursing ourselves out for not being asleep yet. So that's the kind of the cognitive component that drives insomnia forward, which can happen as a result of an insomnia precipitated by anything from a diagnosis to a hospitalization for pneumonia last year. Ever since that pneumonia last year, I just haven't been able to sleep. Or ever since my kids were born, ever since I gave birth, ever <laughs> since my divorce five years ago, or ever since it's got to be my hormones, right? Because this started when I was in menopause. Oh, but that was 15 years ago. So you see, it's like these problems, they get precipitated. Insomnia so often gets precipitated by so many different kinds of problems, whether mental, behavioral, physical, emotional, life. And the yes. next thing you know, it just takes up a life of its own as it starts to set into our mind and really alter our perception of the problem and make us think very dysfunctionally about it. Okay. So you just described many years of nights in my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what do we do about it? Well, How do we handle this? Well, absolutely. Good question. So now we're talking about insomnia, the most common sleep disorder in the world, of which chronic pain is definitely one of tons yeah. of secondary factors that can contribute to it. Um, when it comes to treating insomnia, I always tell people there's two ways to treat insomnia. There is the evidence-based way, and then there's the non-evidence-based way. Now, of course, people are like, oh, come on, you know, I'm coming to see you. Obviously, that means I've tried the non-evidence-based stuff already, and it doesn't work, which is totally reasonable and totally true. By the time people come and see me, you've already exhausted sleep hygiene. You've already tried every blackout curtain and every blindfold. You've tried every single supplement at Costco that had the word sleep in it. You've tried every herbal supplement that you could possibly read about. So if we're talking evidence-based treatments, and I only say that just because not to make fun of those things, there are plenty of people out there who try non-evidence-based treatments like herbal supplements, and it helps them. So you can't argue with that. But for those of us that those things don't work for, which studies show that those are not consistently effective treatments, including melatonin, uh, we're talking, we really only have two evidence-based solutions to treat insomnia. One of them is prescription hypnotics sleeping pills. Yep. They they have a place. They're not the first line. They're definitely not the first thing that we reach for. I personally, in my practice, I think every human being is different and every single sleep difficulty and situation is unique. So of course, my job as a physician is to offer solutions to these problems and caution you on risks and benefits of every single one of them. Sleeping pills, plenty of people do well on them. There are many people who do not. There are people who, just like with any other medication or modality, experience side effects, adverse effects, whether short-term or long-term. But guess what? There's people who take those medications who don't experience those things and do just fine on them. Everyone is different. However, sleeping pills are not the most effective treatment for chronic insomnia in adults. Based on all of the medical literature that exists on insomnia, the most effective treatment for insomnia is CBTI, and that stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. This is a unique form of cognitive behavioral therapy that is 100% sleep insomnia targeted. 
there are a few core components that essentially define the success of CBTI. One of them is the cognitive component, the cognitive restructuring, working on addressing a lot of those dysfunctional thoughts and altered perceptions that you've developed of sleep and this difficulty as a result of having it for so long. So that's one part of it. And then another part of what you do during CBTI, which is a multi-session program, it's anywhere from four to eight sessions, depending on where and with whom you do it. But there are behavioral protocols, highly evidence-based behavioral protocols that you are placed on while you're going through this program. And they're difficult. <laughs> they're really hard to follow. And they go way beyond sleep hygiene. Sleep hygiene is this much of what you cover in cognitive behavior. Sure. It gets much more intensive than that, which is my favorite thing is whenever people come to me and they say, I'm not taking pills. You know, you doctors, all you want to do is just give pills to everybody. And I say, hey, you're in luck because the most effective <laughs> treatment for insomnia is actually not pills. And guess what? It goes like this. And of course, I describe it to them and they're like, so what about the pills again? What, what, what are the options for the pills? Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's hard work what you do during CBTI, because like I said, the behavioral protocols that they put you on during these programs, the provider with whom you work, is, it's challenging stuff. But it works better than everything else. And that's been demonstrated in studies that have compared CBTI head to head with sleeping pills such as Ambien and Lunesta and have shown that CBTI are still is still more effective than those medications. How interesting that we never hear about CBTI. Right. <laughs> uh, so two treatments, essentially. Right. Besides. Non evidence based. Correct. And of course, is as woo woo, but try it because it won't kill you. That's the right. That's what I refer to it as. Uh, so melatonin, natural remedies possibly can help. Maybe not. Mixed bag. Worth a try. It's, okay. right there over, it's right there down the street over the counter. Does diet play into sleep? Depends on the person. How many people do you know can drink a big cup of coffee and still go to sleep right after that? Caffeine at noon. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm like you. If it's past 11 a.m., that's yeah. it. I'm not going to be able to sleep. But many of us know tons and tons of people who don't have that sensitivity to caffeine or, or that response to caffeine. It doesn't necessarily activate them as much as it does to us because every single brain is different. So it really depends on the person when it comes to dietary factors. But typically, I just kind of offer the typical advice of stay away from very activating, sugary, sweetening, or hyper types of so when we don't sleep over long periods of time, particularly when we have other medical conditions going on, uh, psychologically, what happens to us when we're deprived of sleep? Well, it's no surprise that there's a tremendous overlap between sleep and mood, which is why so many times we see sleep issues accompanying depression sleep issues accompanying anxiety disorders and vice versa. And sometimes it can be even hard to tell the chicken and the egg, right? Is it the anxiety that's provoking this sleep difficulty or has this sleep difficulty become such a problem that it's now precipitating an anxiety during the daytime? So it can be really hard to tease these things apart at times, which is why insomnia really, when it comes to insomnia, it's almost always multifactorial. In other words, there's never a situation where you're like, this is it. I found it. I found the one thing that's causing your insomnia. All we got to do is fix, eliminate, erase, correct, or resolve this, and then you're going to be sleeping like a baby. That's right. not realistic. Insomnia, and in many cases, people have, I mean, there's a whole, there's a reason that we exist as a specialty is because there's a whole host of sleep disorders that will present or kind of behave like insomnia. 
with sleep apnea, for example, being one of them. Another one is restless leg syndrome. That's a really common secondary cause of insomnia because if you've ever had restless legs, which is one of the most annoying things in the world, it's essentially characterized by that uncomfortable urge to want to keep on moving or stretching your legs yeah. at night. It happens mainly or only at nighttime and it feels better when you move it or you get up and walk around. But then if that's only momentary, it comes right back and it's just really, really annoying. Happens when you're at rest, as in when you're laying down in bed or if it's the nighttime and you're sitting on the couch. That can be a really irritating thing and it can end up interfering with your ability to initiate sleep in the first part of the night or kind of prolong your latency to falling asleep. And that's insomnia, right? Yeah. But, but that's including our insomnia due to a restless leg. So yeah, my mom used to call it the heebie jeebies. I can't sleep because I've got the heebie jeebies that was restless leg in our house. <laughs> um so sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. Is there a link between sleep apnea and, in this case, spondyloarthritis or other chronic diseases? Well, I'll tell you what we see a lot of in patients with chronic pain related or chronic pain related sleep issues and sleep apnea. Um, so first of all, a lot of people who have chronic pain syndromes take opiates, right? Opiate narcotics, which can be a very effective medication to treat their symptoms, right? I mean, at the end of the day, they can't just live in pain. So with that being the case, opiates actually are a very well-known cause of something called central sleep apnea, which is a, so there are two types of sleep apnea. I don't want to get too much into it, but obstructive sleep apnea is the type of sleep apnea that everybody's talking about that's associated with snoring that, you know, you see um, just when people in everyday social conversations talk about sleep apnea, sleep apnea, sleep apnea, most of the time they're referring to obstructive sleep apnea, which is essentially what sleep apnea is, and just to kind of really keep it simple, I feel like I've talked about it so much and I haven't really kind of given at least a good description of what it is. Um, what sleep apnea is, in one sentence, the easiest way to think about it is sleep apnea is a condition where every time a person goes to sleep, they have a lot of apneas. Now, apneas are brief breathing pauses, usually anywhere between 10 to 30 seconds long, that cause a disruption to the sleep kind of like those arousals that I was talking about, where you get ejected back into a lighter stage and can also cause your oxygen to fall for a few seconds. So that is essentially what sleep apnea is. It's a condition where every time the person's asleep, they have a lot of these brief 10 to 20, 30 second long spells where the breathing becomes shallow to very little, oxygen falls and, and or they have disruption to their sleep. So with that being the case, central sleep apnea when we differentiate the two types, what we're talking about is essentially the cause. In other words, in both conditions, they're having apneas, recurrent breathing pauses during sleep, except that in obstructive sleep apnea, there is an obstruction in their throat, meaning that their tongue and the other structures in their throat are relaxing or over relaxing during sleep to the point that it keeps on closing the airway. Right. So that's the obstruction. But central sleep apnea is when the person doesn't necessarily have obstruction of the throat, but they are having apneas as a result of faulty signaling between the brain and the breathing muscles. And it just so happens that opiates are a really, really common cause of that type of sleep apnea because opiates alter the respiratory center in our brain. So a lot of times people, and this is something that the prescribing physicians, well, not to badmouth anybody, but the prescribing physicians will very, very often overlook and not even think about because they're treating the pain appropriately with one of these medications. And then next thing you know, the person's getting really sleepy during the day. But maybe some people are attributing that sleepiness 
as a side effect of the medication, as opposed to maybe they now have sleep apnea, central sleep apnea due to opiates. So that can be a tricky, but yeah. And then they may end up in the clinic with a CPAP and then they're treating the treatment, right? Right. Seen this more than once. Uh, (laughs) So the, I guess your rule of thumb is start with sleep hygiene, move toward first line of defense is CBTI, and then look at medications that kind of summarize approach. Except for the sleep hygiene part. Remember that it's important. I always make sure that I, when I'm teaching fellows and students and residents and whatnot, I make sure to really, really clarify because th- this is why so many people are misled by sleep hygiene and think that I've done everything. I even got a blindfold or a, you know, a blackout curtain. And it's like, okay, you've, all you've done was improved your habits, but improving habits don't fix problems. Habits are for, for people who don't have problems but solutions and treatments are for people that have problems. Sleep hygiene is not a solution or a treatment. It's just having good habits. It's again, going right back to the example of the person who's 500 pounds, just telling them to fix their eating habits is not enough. No. So what if I come to you and I say, I've slept great for 25 years. I've got ankylosing spondylitis. And all of a sudden I'm not sleeping. Uh, can that be, can those changes in sleep patterns be a warning of like disease progression in some cases, or maybe flares coming down the road? What a good question. You know, I would say to somebody who has, for whatever reason, or whatever their medical history may be, if somebody has a really abrupt change in their sleep pattern, more often it's less likely to be physiologic or underlying physical problem. In other words, things like sleep apnea or movement disorders during sleep, such as periodic wind movement disorder or other things like that, those are not things that just develop overnight or develop over the course of a week. Um, If it's that abrupt, more often it's a cognitive and or behavioral problem or some kind of like we were saying like precipitating factors, new stressors, things that happen to our life that somehow just kind of throw off our sleep-wake pattern temporarily. Um, that's that's kind of more what I'm thinking of these when somebody comes in, for example, for I haven't been able to sleep for like a month versus the person who comes and sees me and says, this has been going on for 15 years. So. And on the flip side, do you see people who come to you with a chronic pain uh, or chronic condition who haven't been sleeping for 15 years and then they start sleeping and their, their prognosis improves? Interesting question. I have a lot of patients who deal with chronic pain as part of their sleep issues. And depending on, of course, the cause of the pain, whether it requires involving a rheumatologist, right, in the case of something like spondylitis, or even getting the pain management doctors on board, depending on how severe the pain is. You know, again, insomnia is going to, insomnia in particular is going to almost always be multifactorial with chronic pain being one of those things. So having a plan to sort of, you know, devising a plan that's going to be able to target each and every component that's contributing to the broken sleep is, is, is typically how we manage these things. Now, I can tell you that I've seen countless patients who have struggled with chronic pain and sleep issues. And it's kind of, again, this perpetual cycle where poor sleep, more pain, more pain, more poor sleep, and then it just continues in cycle um, that have had significant improvement in their pain and or sleep. And as a result, the entire picture gets better. 
So it is something that we see a lot of. It just really, really depends. Every case is so unique and different. If we really think it's mainly the pain issue and just really getting better control of that is going to improve the whole thing, then great. But if, like we said, the pain issue is part of it, and then on top of the pain issue, maybe they've gained weight over the last couple of years as a result of being sedentary from you know a car accident or an underlying condition, whatever the case may be. And now as a result of weight gain, maybe now they've developed sleep apnea on top of their chronic pain, which is all these things kind of piling on top of each other. This is these are the people that we see every single day. These are these are like the kind of person I'm describing. This is not some kind of rare case. These are the people who come in here every single day that we need to have a really kind of multifaceted plan to really address all the issues because sleep apnea is a serious condition that affects cardiovascular health and quality of life. Insomnia is a really important condition that affects quality of life, mood, performance, interactions, social behavior, so on, and the list is endless, quality of life. And obviously chronic pain is a serious issue as well. So, Yeah, you're preaching to the choir. So <laughs> I used to be a, a horrible sleeper and I somehow, have, I don't know, I've unlocked my own solution. Uh, but when you, can you, I guess, and we should probably wrap this up. This is fascinating. I could go on for, I could, I could ask you questions for hours. Uh, resources, where do people go to find out how to help their, their insomnia? Yeah. So again, there's a reason that we exist as a specialty. Um, we are no different than any other medical specialty. When you have a problem with your bones, you see an orthopedist. When your chest hurts or you can't breathe, you see a cardiologist or a pulmonologist. So when you have a sleep problem, you have sleep physicians, depending on what the issue is. Insomnia is one of many sleep disorders that we treat. That just so happens to be the most common one and happens to have a tremendous number of secondary factors that, like you said, can contribute to it. But we've got really good solutions for these problems. It really just depends on what the situation is, what's going on. And in some cases, like I said, depending on whether the person actually has insomnia, because sometimes certain conditions, physical or mental health related, can kind of look like insomnia. So once again, going back to the example of sleep apnea, one of the most common symptoms of sleep apnea, untreated sleep apnea in many people is awakenings. So a lot of people with sleep apnea, they just have lots of awakenings. And they're not necessarily awakening, gasping for air the way that they show on TV. I wish everybody with sleep apnea looked like that. My job would be a lot easier. <laughs> many people with untreated sleep apnea are not gasping. They just, all they know is they just keep waking up. They just keep on waking up and having an awakening soon. And I, so they come in, they see their primary care doctor. They say, you know, I have insomnia. I, for some reason, I can't stay asleep. I just keep waking up. And if that doctor or clinician is not thinking to themselves, hmm, well, it wouldn't be bad if we checked you for sleep apnea just to X that off of our list. And instead just says, here, take some Ambien without, of course, even offering cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is the most effective treatment for insomnia to begin with. But let's say they, that person gets an Ambien. Well, now they have untreated sleep apnea, which is a condition that their breathing is unstable at nighttime. Now you're sedating them with a medication that's going to just not necessarily, not definitely not fix their sleep apnea. It might artificially extend their sleep duration or give them a little bit of sleep time on top or of additional sleep time and make them think they're better. But what did you just do? You just gave somebody with a chronic breathing issue with unstable oxygen at night a sedating medication, and now they're going to start developing dependence on it. And guess what? That's not going to eliminate their awakenings. They still have sleep apnea. Their sleep yeah. is still getting broken and aroused by this disruptive breathing pattern. 
So this is a situation that is, it's such a mess and it's so common, unfortunately, because people don't come to see us enough, because people don't refer to us enough to really get these problems evaluated the most comprehensive and appropriate way. So my advice is talk to your doctor and see a sleep doctor. So when someone comes to a sleep doctor, do you do the CBTI or does someone, does that come through a, a specialist on the cognitive side? That's an excellent question. And the answer is I am one, I am, I am one sleep doctor that also likes to deliver CBTI myself because I'm self-taught in CBTI and I'm also certified and credentialed in it. However, that's not as common of a thing. It's more common to refer to a specialist to do CBTI, which usually those specialists are psychotherapists who have training specifically in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Okay, great. So I'm going to ask you the final question. Mm -hmm. For people with insomnia, there's hope. Absolutely. And you don't see anything coming down the pike in sleep medicine that's going to change other than actually addressing the root of the problem, which often is the CBTI function. Well, for many. Know, yeah. When it comes to treating any sleep disorder, insomnia, sleep apnea, or our patients with narcolepsy, which no, is not just the problem that people drop their face into a chocolate cake. It's an actual neurologic disease, right. a hormone in their brain. But for every single one of these conditions, we're, we're a young field in medicine. We've only been around for maybe 40 or 50 years. So with that being the case, the, our armamentarium to really kind of treat each one of these problems, the options that we have are relatively limited. Now, I would love that I would love the most common sleep disorder in the world, insomnia, to have more than just two evidence-based treatment options. But it just so happens that the number one one with CBTI is really, really effective. So I my opinion and my recommendation is always going to be CBTI, CBTI, just because of how much evidence there is and how much I see people turn upside down. It's just ultimately up to the person, right? Just like the example with dieting. If I offer you, if you come to me for weight loss and I have two options for you, a pill that's going to help you lose weight, it's not perfect. There might have side effects. It can be effective. Or I've got this really hardcore eight-week diet that evidence shows that people who weigh in the range of 400 to 500 pounds after three months of following this diet strictly and religiously lost X amount of percentage of total body fat. Look at these, compare these two options. Obviously, the diet is way more difficult, but it's way more effective and it's done without medication. Yeah. This life is hard and sometimes we have to choose our hard, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And, so, and, and it's such an important, and, and not to, and just because you said that, um, it's up to the person, right? everybody's situation is unique and different. And there are plenty of people, and I, was, I wasn't trying to be silly earlier when I said that, you know, some people say, oh, just tell me about the medications. Cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is not easy. You're gonna be sleep deprived in the beginning of that program. It's six to eight weeks or four to eight weeks, depending on when you do it or what institution you do it at. Some people's preferences, just give me something. And if that's the case, if you and I have an understanding that you're gonna have close follow-up with me, because it's not like I'm just gonna perpetually refill your sleeping pill electronically forever without seeing you more than once. We're going to make sure that we have good follow-up, that every time we see each other every couple of months, that you're doing well, you're not having any side effects, you're sleeping, which is the whole reason yeah. I'm giving you this pill. 
you're not running out of medication early, you're not doubling up, you're not needing to increase the dose, you're not needing to mix it up with booze and NyQuil's and Sequil's and Benadryl's, or you're not doctor shopping behind my back and getting prescriptions from here and there. If all that stuff checks off and you're not having any kind of impairment in your behavior, your cognition, psychomotor performance, coordinate, whatever the case may be, then yeah, that's a totally reasonable situation. This is the way you want to treat your insomnia. And I will absolutely help you with that as long as all those things get checked off. But again, if you want my recommendation of how to get, how to, get to the bottom of this, it's always going to be CBTI because the same way that it took, took time for your mind and your behaviors to kind of form in this way that you have this problem, it takes time to undo and change the way that you think and change your behaviors because you can't change what happens to you on a daily basis. You can't change the fact that you're going to have a hospitalization. You can't change the fact that you're going to give birth to those kids. You can't change the fact that you're going to get divorced, right? You don't have a time machine. Or how about all the predisposing factors for insomnia, like childhood trauma? Or I come from a family of crappy sleepers that have the lights on till 4 a.m. every single day, and that's the house that I grew up in. That's just all I know. These are things that are in our past and history that predispose us to develop sleep troubles or sleep difficulties as adults. You can't change those either. So what can you change? You can change the way you think and you can change the way you behave. And that's what cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is so effective at doing. And that's why it works. I love it. I'm convinced. I've never heard of CBTI. I thought I knew everything, <laughs> especially about, about uh, sleep. I just, I had no idea there was a whole branch of CBT for insomnia. Okay. We should wrap this because yeah, we could do three more of these episodes. This has been absolutely fascinating and filled with knowledge on a topic that I thought I knew a lot about. Mm -hmm. uh, so I hope our listeners got a lot out of that too. Uh, thank you so much you. Uh, on behalf of SAA and everyone who's listening. Uh, we so appreciate it. And I hope more people get a good night's sleep because of your help. <laughs> that makes two of us. <laughs> I think you're I think you're well on the way. So <laughs> all right, we can wrap it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Likewise. Spondycast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.